0: Luke 23, verse 44 and following. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place he praised God saying certainly this man was innocent and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea and he was a member of the council a good and righteous man who was not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a little linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, as we look closely upon Jesus, upon the tree bearing our curse, Father, I pray that you would make the preaching of your word powerful, that this gospel, not of man, not by man's power, nor by man's persuasion, is the power of Jesus Christ unto salvation for all who believe. May we see the cross and its uh, moment as the high point of history where our salvation is brought about. May we uh, gaze upon Christ and believe and trust and rest, I pray in His name. Amen. So as we have been looking at the cross, as we have been turning our attention to Jesus, uh, I would like to look at the words in a letter from one of the men who visibly watched Him as He died. Turn to 1 John 4, verse 7. The Apostle... John, speaking about the death of Jesus, would have remembered as he wrote the agonized face of Jesus upon the cross. He would have remembered what his body looked like under the torture that he had suffered. He would have remembered the sounds of Jesus' cries from the cross. He would have watched his dying breath. With all this in mind, The Apostle John writes this letter and says to us in 1 John 4, verse 7 to 11, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's the word of the Lord. This passage contains the famous statement, God is love. And maybe surprisingly to you, this short phrase has become one of the more controversial passages of Scripture. Now we all know that most people in the world would say there's few things they want to talk about more than love. They would probably cite love as one of the greatest goods in life. In the spirit of Paul in Athens with the Areopagus, we could quote one of the great poets of our own day, Nat King Cole, who sang in 1947 that the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. And that song has, of course, been covered by everyone from Celine Dion to Frank Sinatra to David Bowie. Apparently, we all believe this is true. The greatest thing we could ever learn is to be loved and love in return. But increasingly, trying to actually understand what love is and define it is becoming almost impossible. We like terms like falling in love or feeling a spark because they're a little bit nonsensical. They kind of defy explanation. We don't have to say what they mean. It's apparently possible now to love someone without liking them. Children might hear when their parents' marriage ends that it's all right because mom and dad still love each other. We regularly hear nowadays that maybe the most important need is to love yourself. For many of us, love is just this kind of elusive feeling and experience. It's like this childhood memory this maybe Christmas morning memory that you're, you keep trying to get back to and hold on to, and you just can't. You watch it in the movies, or you even see it from the outside in the relationships of your friends and your family, and you're sure that there's this sort of fulfilling emotional experience that you are missing out on. Now that means that many of us are increasingly trying to define love by looking into ourselves. We're searching, and we're searching our ever-changing emotions. We're searching our fickle attitudes to try and find this feeling of love or of being loved. This means that we are judging all of our relationships, all of our supposedly loving relationships, by whether or not we feel good about them. Do we feel loved? Do we feel loving? This not only leaves us in agony but it is inherently self-involved because we are left to judge our relationships based on whether or not we emotionally are happy about them, essentially whether we want them, whether we think we need them. That means now we are hearing more and more about people, not just breaking up with their spouses, but even with their parents, with their family members for the sake of their own emotional health. People arguing that abortion is loving because they wouldn't be able to provide a good lifestyle for their children because they cannot do it while pursuing their own goals. So now, when we read God is love, all of this baggage and confusion gets imported to this idea of what God's love must be, this love which is supposedly so inherent to understanding who God is. It's become popular to say that God made us because God was lonely, because God needed us, because He needed our love, He wanted that emotional experience of our love. We even talk about Jesus' love this way. The argument goes a little bit like this, Jesus in His day was of course criticized for spending time with social outcasts, prostitutes and tax collectors, sinners. This was of course true. Jesus loved those who others had rejected. But then we go on to say, well, this is evidence that those social outcasts and what many of them were doing must not have been that bad. In a way, by loving them, Jesus was validating them. It was those judgmental Pharisees. They were the ones who didn't deserve his love. Do you see what this does to the love of Jesus? We're we're comfortable saying Jesus loves people who are broken, who are messed up, who are confused. Those words are okay. We can apply those to ourselves. But ultimately, Jesus loved us because he ought to have, which means in a way he loved us because we merited that love from him. That's what he should have done. He must have loved those outcasts because he saw something good in them, something that we should also recognize and validate others. In some way, it means Jesus loved people because they deserved it. Jesus tells us that if you are loving someone because you look into them and ask the question, did they merit it? You have achieved the lowest common denominator of love. Luke 6.32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Now after John tells us, God is love, he goes on to say, in this is love. So he's about to explain to us, what is that love which actually defines God's character? So that we can say, God is love. Now John doesn't give us a dictionary definition, he gives us an event John wants to show us the pure gold standard of love. If we can understand this, John says, then we can understand what God's love really is. So what, according to John, is the gold standard of love? He continues, "...in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins." The first point that we can make is this. For John, what makes the cross the highest standard of love is that it was undeserved. God, when he sent Jesus to the cross, was not showing us love because we had loved him or done anything for him. Nothing to deserve it. In Paul's words in Romans 5, God showed us this love while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, incapable, while we were his enemies. God's definition of love is not a reward or a return we give to someone who has satisfied our feelings. It is not an emotion that we feel in response to the loving actions of others. That's just not love according to God. It is kindness bestowed on those who have done even the opposite of deserving it. Those who in their actions declared that they were God's enemies. On the cross, Jesus wasn't feeling some warm, fuzzy kind of emotional pull to the people around him. He didn't feel like they were satisfying his needs, so he was able to care about them. Jesus was in utter agony. His friends had forsaken him. He was falsely accused. He was mocked, whipped, beaten, and crucified. That is how people were treating Jesus. As Brother Kevin said, all of this was just a shadow of the pain that he felt from God's gracious face turning away from him as the Father's wrath was poured out upon him. So when Jesus says, in the midst of all this pain, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, it clearly was not a love that was shown to them because they were satisfying Jesus' needs and emotions. What makes the cross the greatest act of love in history is that love was being shown to those who were in wicked acts of hatred towards Jesus in that moment. That love was being shown to those who were actively demonstrating that they did not deserve that love. That they would never be able to make a proper return for it. And this makes the cross so incredibly loving. But that is not all. Because Jesus' love didn't just leave these enemies as his enemies. That's the second thing we see in 1 John. The love of Jesus shown to the undeserving was for their good. Jesus' love on the cross was still not just a kind feeling towards his persecutors. I want you to know that I care about you. The cross wasn't some Simple declaration of love, like proposing on a jumbotron or writing a song for someone, that would make the suffering of Jesus seem ridiculous in a way. What makes the cross the greatest act of love, certainly the greatest display of love, is that Jesus came to accomplish what we so desperately needed. We see that in verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So what made Jesus act so incredibly loving is that he came to accomplish something for us. God sent Jesus to give us life, says John, as a propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is often translated atoning sacrifice. We can maybe make it even simpler. It means that Jesus was a sacrifice dying in the place of others to take their wrath. So that instead of God turning His wrath towards us, He can turn and show us the kindness that Jesus deserved. Now it would be, of course, very good and right for God to have left us under his wrath, bound for the punishment of hell. But God made one perfect way for us to instead have eternal life with him. One way, one truth, one life, and that is Jesus. Jesus taking our punishment upon the cross so that we could have the relationship of children with God. So the height of God's love is shown that in while we were enemies, God sent Jesus to be treated like an enemy so that those enemies could be God's children. And the cross doesn't just change our standing with God, it actually changes us. So then, once we are declared God's children, instead of living as God's enemies, we actually start living as children. We are made like our Father through the Holy Spirit. That love of God is actually working in us, not only becoming a standard and an example to us, but becoming, but changing our hearts so that it is the pattern of love that we can follow every day. Now, John turns this wonderful truth about God's love into an exhortation. This is the third thing that John says about God's love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Even more strongly, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, once we have become the beneficiaries of God's love, changing love through Jesus' death on the cross. Now we are made able to show that love to others. And you can't get out of John's exhortations here by just changing it to a a different definition of love. Of Of course I'm loving. John has already told us what love actually is. And then he says that is the love which is going to define a Christian. Not transactional love that asks, is it good for me to love this person? Or do I feel loved enough by this person to be loving towards them? This is love that would lay down our whole lives for the sake of those whom we will never expect to deserve it. And just like God's love on the cross, we extend this love hoping that it will actually play a part in the real work that God is accomplishing in others. Just as we can only show this love because the Holy Spirit's working in us, we show this love expecting the Holy Spirit to use it in others. This is how the church, as we love each other with Christ's love, builds itself up in love. That's what Paul tells the Ephesians. So in light of that, there are two questions I want to ask you this morning. First, have you believed in and trusted in this greatest act of love in history as yours. Not just something that happened. Certainly not just a happy tradition or a story that we can come to hear to better understand ourselves and our culture once a year. Is this something that Jesus actually, historically, truly, really did for you? Not just something loving that God did, but love that He actually showed to you. Why do so many people reject the all time gold standard of love? Because it is clear that we cannot understand this love until we understand our own sin. If we say that we ourselves aren't that bad, certainly better than the next guy, we ourselves we're not really enemies of God. We're confused, we make mistakes, but we're not living as his enemies. Then we will never come to understand how much God loved us on the cross. We like to think that God loved us because that was right for him to do. He should have loved us. Because in a way, we ought to have been loved. God loved us because we weren't that hard to love. We were maybe easy to love. But God's love is so much bigger than that. Because God loved you so much that he died for you not while you were a righteous person. Not while you were a good person. He died for you as an enemy. While you were doing everything you could to prove to God that you deserve to be in hell. That is when he sent Jesus to die for you. That is why you need Jesus to die for you at all. Because you need a sacrifice of atonement. You need someone to die in your place. If you say that you should have any claim on the love of God, you are saying that a sacrifice of atonement offered for you would have been improper. It would have been out of place. As soon as you treat God's love like it is deserved, you have rejected it. You've missed it. So do not be afraid to see your sin. Not just compared with the next man. Compared with a perfect, infinite God who created all the universe. Who is the standard of goodness because it is from him that all good comes. Recognize that so that you can see the incredible, astounding extent of the love of God. Shown while we were still enemies. He does not want you to despair as you see your sin. Unless, of course, you are trusting in yourself or something other than him. Then despair. Despair of that trust and turn to him. Because it is as simple as believing. Seeing what is true and trusting in that as your hope. Do you have faith in Jesus? Have you believed in your heart that he died on the cross actually for you, that God raised him from the dead because he had fully paid your price? Have you confessed that Jesus is now your Lord, risen and reigning, that all your hope for life and a relationship with God is in him? Do not wait. Today is the day and this is the hour. Believe in him and be saved. The next question is this It's for us who say that we've called on him and trusted on him, that we know that his great act of love was indeed for us. Does your own love for others show that his love has really been at work in you? That the power of his love is in you? Or does your love show? That you've only understood love like those who have not experienced the love of God. John assures us that if God loved us, we love one another. Not just because we've got Jesus as a good example. That is certainly true. Certainly not because we are trying to make ourselves worthy of God's love. We have already seen that is not true. Because his love has worked in us by the power of the Spirit. Jesus says the evidence of his power is that his disciples will love one another. He goes further to say that they will love their enemies. It is impossible for us who are saved by Jesus. If it is impossible for us who have been loved by Jesus to say that we can love people except for those who have shown love to us then we're saying that the resurrection and the death of Jesus has no power. Have you resisted the love of God by refusing to show it? Resisted his grace to you by refusing to show grace? Is your love a reward for those who have treated you properly? Has it run out of grace? Do you have a list of people in your head, even right now? Family members, colleagues, public figures or politicians? who are so terrible that it is right and good that you would never love them. Remember that loving sinners does not mean that you are happy with their sin. It does not mean that you ignore it. We love with prayerful hope that the Spirit will use our love to accomplish in others the same wonderful work that God's love accomplished in a sinner and an enemy like us. We want their salvation there's sanctification, that is the power of God's love. There may even be times when our love means correcting, means rebuking, but always as love, always in hope, because we are trusting in the miraculous power of God's love in others, just like we are relying on it as we see Christ's love for us. In closing, I want to look at the passage where Jesus himself says something very similar to John where he shows us that the pinnacle of love is his atoning sacrifice. Jesus says in John 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life we are here this morning looking at Jesus. Just like they were looking at the serpent raised up in the wilderness. That bronze serpent was raised up because God's people were suffering His punishment for their sin. But He gave them a way to simply look at what He had raised up and be saved. No qualification. Nothing to prove. Nothing to accomplish. Just look at what God has provided. Look at what God has raised up for you. We are here to look at Jesus. We look with our hearts. We trust in him. Have you looked at him? Have you looked to him to be saved? Looked at him on the cross as your only hope. That is all you need to do. But then don't stop doing it. Keep looking at him. Keep your eyes on the cross, that colossal, unimaginable love of God who gave his son so that we would not perish but have eternal life. Trust it to be the power unto salvation, justification, sanctification, and even on that last day, our glorification, a love that we are so glad to say today sees us safely home. Now one of the ways that God has given us while we are still here in the wilderness in a way to keep our eyes upon the cross, using our eyes and also our mouths and our ears and our hands, is the Lord's Supper. This is a gift from Jesus so that we would never take our eyes off of him. He gave this to his people so that you could be confronted with his love for you as often as you take it. So that you would remember in this bread and in this cup that there is his body, there is his blood given for you in love. And the Holy Spirit will use this in you. This is a part of his work so that his love really changes us, really works faith in us, really conforms us to him. Now, if you have not trusted in him, if you are not a part of his family, if you are not known to belong to him, do not take this with us yet. This is a supper given by Christ to his church. Those who have together declared by him that they have joined with his body. So please, only take this if you are a part of his family if you are a member of his body, a member of a church, not just our church, any church, a church that proclaims the gospel, where you are known and held and where it is agreed that you indeed have trusted in the love of Jesus. And as we have done before, we are going to deliver this supper afterwards to those dear saints, those members of the body who would love to be among us today and are not able to do so i like to call the elders forward. And we will jump backwards in our account in Luke to read when Jesus, before he went to the cross, gave this supper to his disciples. Luke 22, verse 14 to 23. When the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes." And when he took the bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are here to put our eyes upon Jesus, to remember, to look with eyes of faith, to see him there on the cross. And Father we thank you that we do not visibly see him there because he is not there anymore. We gather around this table so that we are given a way to see and remember what Jesus has already completed. He did suffer. He did die the death that we deserved. The wrath was poured out on him that should have been poured out on us. So that he has already risen. So that he by his death and resurrection It's our power unto salvation if we would only believe. So I pray, Father, that those who are not yet a part of this family, who have not trusted in Jesus, that they would believe in him. And I pray that those of us who have, as we gather around this table as his church, would be strengthened and encouraged to keep our eyes upon him, to persevere as our brother Herman, as Richard, as those who have gone before us have. Unto our eternal hope that this cross has purchased for us with Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now going to pass.